everything about them felt bigger than everything that was happening. It it felt like even dead presidents. I don't know, just seeing them and it just felt like um more effort, like a movie we haven't seen. Right. And it felt uh, authentic. It yeah. just they felt they didn't feel um freshmen even when they were freshmen. Right. You know what I mean? It felt like you wanted to know they had some secrets we didn't know about even though we've been in the game a little bit right. already. That they had some oh, answers interesting. that we didn't know. That is me and Saif's old colleague, Angie Martinez. You may have heard of her. Yeah. She was everything at Hot 97 in the heyday of hip hop. Yeah, Angie's like a sister to me and I would say like a an enemy to Rosenberg. She doesn't like you. That's correct. That's correct. Well, when do you remember him going from popping to being the man? Like he became Jay-Z for hmm. real. It's probably harder for you to think about it because you've always been at a very baseline level with him. But I, you can see those moments when you're like, holy shit, like this guy is my friend and he's now hanging with so-and-so or doing this, you know what I mean? Yeah, that always connects when you start seeing like super famous people like their fans too. Um, damn, I don't know. I feel like it was a slow progression too. I don't know. I think Dame was really good at marketing in a way that it was that it it forced you to feel outside like them doing those parties in the Hamptons and then and seeing models in their videos and and showing them overseas and yeah he tried to really paint this picture of this you know Pamela Anderson was in one of the videos I'm not saying that that was the moment I'm just saying when I started seeing people like that yeah wanting to be down you really start being like oh wow this is yeah this is getting bigger than this just is big new york hip-hop like yeah yeah welcome to one app i'm peter rosenberg and my name is cypher sounds and what is one app one app is a is a conglomeration of two folks all right it's a hip-hop podcast you're making it too complicated no i can already tell i was gonna say that hip-hop podcast yeah, but we don't do hip-hop. We talk about hip-hop. People know what a podcast is. Right. All right. So when we left off last time, it's the mid-90s, mm, you know? Yeah. Jay-Z is, he's making a name for himself, yeah, right? Of course. He did the tour with Big Daddy Kane. Yep. Um, he's not just Jazzo's little friend anymore. No, no. He's making noise. That's right. He's working on his own music now. He's playing clubs in New York. Um, he's making connections. He's getting hooked up. He's starting to know people. Um, He's also taking music more seriously with the urging of people like the one and only Clark Kent. Like, you got to understand who Clark Kent was in the industry at that time in the early and mid-90s. You know what I'm saying? Clark Kent is a very famous DJ. Uh, He used to DJ for Dana Dane. He's from Brooklyn, and he was the club king. He did all the big clubs in New York City. He became an A&R for a couple different labels. He, He was a producer. He was basically a major player. And he starts connecting Jay-Z to other artists that he also worked with. For example, Notorious B.I.G. Smalls. Never heard of him. But um, Clark also, can I just say, side note, I think he's one of the coolest looking dudes in hip hop. Is that weird? No. He, definitely, he just looks cool. He definitely has a whole nother life of being like this sneaker connoisseur. Yeah, he is. He's a, he's a cool ass dude. And he is the guy who ends up, you know, really telling Biggie about how dope Jay-Z is. Mm -hmm. Now, around this same time, Jay-Z also links up 
with this brash, loud, arrogant, mm. smart dude. Oh, you from were Harlem. around back then? No, but I know, dude. No, no, I'm saying I'm talking I thought, about I thought you were saying he was introducing him to you. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking I'm talking about uh Damon Dash. Dame Dash, yes, from Harlem. All right, so you have Jay-Z, you have Dame Dash, and then you have another cat, a, a hustler from Harlem named Kareem Biggs Burke. Mm. They all come together and form what we know as Rockefeller Records. So the first time I got, I knew of Jay-Z was Battle of the Beats. I had this feature called Battle of the Beats. I used to play, put, pit one song against the other. And I had a, he had, oh my God, what was the flip side of in my, it, I can't it, get with that. Now, what what was that song going up against in the battle? I believe it was against Ill and Out Scratch. Oh. And I believe, in Ill and Out Scratch at that time was was a big deal, Don't right? say it was against one of my homies. No, it was the one after that. I'll take her. I'll take her. Okay. And because um, if it was against where my homies, yeah. sorry, because they, they were already they were already ill and out scratch. They were a name. And yeah. normally in Battle of the Beats, even though I like to think people have a good ear, usually who's the most famous person would get would win sometimes. Right. So it was ill and out scratch against this guy named Jay Z from Brooklyn that nobody knew of yet. And um, the numbers were crazy. Like Jay blew it out the water. Really? And so I remember like poking around, like who's Jay Z? Like who is this guy? Right. And um, I think it was the so Jay won like four nights in a row. Uh-huh. And I think on the fourth or fifth night, because we used to retire them after the fifth night, Jay and Dame showed up at the radio station in the buggy eyed Rockefeller Benz. People weren't wrapping cars back yeah. then, you know what I mean? So they had a buggy eye Benz and it was wrapped with all these Rockefeller logos. And they had like the back rigged, it was like the trunk, and they had it rigged to show videos. So they were like, hey, how you doing? I'm Dame, I'm Jay, whatever. I was like, oh yeah, congratulations. They were waiting outside for you? Outside the radio when station. When you left or when you came in? When I left. Okay. And, you know, Dame was the talker and Jay yeah. was kind of like, cool, nice to meet you, whatever. And... Dame was like, yo, we got to show you the video. So he pops the trunk and the trunk opens and there's like a video screen. And I'm Hilarious. like, people weren't doing stuff. Can I call yeah, something? Yeah. People weren't doing shit like that. No, so no, this was- is a clean Amish podcast. <laughs> well, the last one you did was Amish. So I thought. By the way, I like that they went with the buggy eye Benz, which is so expensive and they wanted classy, but they also wrapped it yeah. and had videos playing on it. In the back. It's like so. Well, because it was like their promotional van. Right. So it was a it was mix fly. of like, we're going to fly and classy. But, but isn't that really what they built their whole yeah. label and existence on? Like, to, uh, like upscale, but then also... So, so hip-hop. Hip-hop like, and yeah. relatable, flashy, yeah. flashy, right. So anyway, so he played it. I was like, oh, well, first of all, I was like, who the hell are these two guys? Yeah. They gave me a bottle of champagne. They did that. Thank me. I was like, all right, well. Right. But I was impressed by their presentation. Right. And you could tell that they were not some regular, like, up-and-coming rappers. Yeah. Like, it felt different. You know, no it felt idea different. who these guys were beforehand. Nothing, no. Nothing, okay. No. All right, now, Saif, let's talk about how important Hot 97 was as an outlet in hip-hop at this time. Yeah, Hot 97 was obviously uh, the place I spent 17 years of my life, and now I'm just disgraced radio personality. But <laughs> Sad. Uh, the term hip-hop radio, when you hear that term, oh, a hip-hop radio station, Hot 97 started that. Some people say it was KML. Mm. Yeah, I'll go with Hot. Mm. <laughs> and when it came to New York, I mean, Hot 97 was everything. I'm talking about th- there was no, I know this is trite to say, but it's true. There wasn't YouTube. There weren't blogs. There wasn't, you know, people tweeting about what new music there was. Yeah. There was Hot 97. There was driving around at night, listening to Funk Flex play these records, yep. um, listening to Angie Martinez do interviews in the afternoons. Yep. This is... 
this is what hip hop sounded like. Yeah. Hot 97. And it was authentic too. Yeah, that's the thing about Hot 97. Like they didn't just grab any old jocks from some other kind of format station and then just make it a hip hop station. Like the people on Hot 97 were of the culture. You know what I'm saying? Like Yeah, they they didn't they didn't just go out and get some random, you know, hip hop loving white boys from the suburbs of Maryland not yet. and just throw them on the air. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, if you do that, once you do that, that's death. <laughs> we had a good run. We did. Can you also can you give us a little bit about what the general um radio scene in New York was at the time? I obviously know this. We obviously know this, but what how important radio was at that point to music in New York culturally? It was it. That was it. Especially for interviews. Like so now you're starting to hear artists talk on the radio, which to, to now doesn't seem it seems like no big deal because yeah. they're everywhere. But if you were a fan of like group home or like, you know, any other of the earlier groups, you don't they weren't <clears throat> getting press where you get to see them talk and get to know who they were. This was it. We were it. Yeah. And like so any of the up and coming, hip, you know, and the new hip hop artists, this was the house for it. And so um, it became very, you know, just it was like a cultural moment and spot. And it was nobody else doing that. I mean, MTV was doing like some, they were covering some rap stories. and If, if they made you MTV raps. Well, MTV raps, there. right. But that was, you know, you would see Naughty by Nature. And those, you you weren't going to see some of the the more like underground or new artists there right away. Um, and, even, you know, so that, it was, it was that. It was like the go-to place if you were a hip-hop fan. All right, so you got to look at the history of the whole situation. At this point, Jay-Z is still basically an underground rapper. Um, he's gaining a lot of traction. He's making a lot of noise. He's, he's, he's in the hip-hop world. But despite all that popularity, he still couldn't get a record deal. That is something you need to understand. Jay-Z, who we now know is the greatest, could not get a record deal. Yeah, and that that sort of remained part of his story for a very long time. And I think it also uh, gave him a chip on his shoulder that he held on to for a very long time. So he's working. Um, he he starts to mature. He gets a more laid back style. Um, I don't know why. If it's maybe he just got bored of the fast rapping or he wanted to do something that was a little more accessible. Um, but. If you listen to his first single, his first official single, In My Lifetime, yeah. you can hear how he doesn't try to squeeze in as many words as he used to. So he's developing as an artist, okay? But he was not a great performer yet. And Saif, I remember seeing him a couple years after this time. Yeah. He still wasn't a great performer at no. that time. Now, you may remember the legendary DJ Scratch from the last episode. Well, Turns out Scratch is not just a great DJ. He he's like a a hip hop performance guru as well, Sife. I saw EPMD perform before I got down with them. I'm like, yo, they're trash on stage. Like they just stood there. They were nervous, you know what I'm saying? Young kids, teenagers, they they literally stood next to each other and didn't move. And the crowd hated that shit. It was like, yo, they're whack. By the way, Hove Hove was not different at the very beginning. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I was getting to. So like Jay wasn't a good performer either. You know, Jay's Jay's laid back. He a laid back dude, so he's not going to move too much. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. I'm like, yo, you got to, when you're on stage, you have to enjoy your music because if, you're not, if you don't look like you're enjoying your music, the crowd is not going to enjoy you.
So despite Jay's undeniable talent, there were still some barriers to making his hobby profitable. Now, I, I really want to stress how important this moment was. At the time, all we knew was be a rapper, get a record deal, sign to a major label, and then get, you know, try to become a star. But he wasn't getting the deal. So this is where they try to translate the the street smarts and the and the and the distribution skills they had from the streets into the capitalist enterprise of the record industry. This is the moment. This is the moment where a hustler became a businessman. I think Dame Dash was uh, managing um, original flavor at the time. That's Austin Williams, a writer for Complex. Dame eventually got connected to Jay-Z. And Biggs actually tells a funny story where he wasn't really impressed with Jay-Z's rapping at first. So it, it, was, it was that sort of thing where someone's like, yo, yo, my man's can rap, but you should meet him. And then they meet and then they don't hit it off right away. He wasn't really impressed with the double time, fast rapping Jay-Z. And, and he, he tells a story about he wasn't really sold on Jay-Z as a rapper until in my lifetime. All right, so we just mentioned that Jay had flipped up his flow and done it a little bit differently on the record In My Lifetime. Mm -hmm. Well, he dropped In My Lifetime in 1995 on Payday Records. On vinyl? That's right, a vinyl record 12-inch single. Wow. That's right. It was In My Lifetime, In My Lifetime remix, and Can't Get With That Mm. was on the B-side. And they were doing everything they could to get Jay-Z's name out there, sending people bottles of champagne. Yeah. Um, rolling up on Angie Martinez. Here's Jay-Z talking to us back in 2011 about all the different methods they used to get DJ's attention. Uh, tell me, can you tell me a little about the the idea? I love this. I wasn't I wasn't DJing yet, but everyone told me about the promo idea that you and Dame had for In My Lifetime. Do you remember sending out the wax for In My Lifetime? Yeah. Tell, tell people about You mean that. talking about with the uh, champagne yes. and all that? Yeah. My cousin Beehai, he really hates this to this day. Why? He hates all DJs because of this. Because he reduced himself in his mind to, you know, this is a Brooklyn, you know, guy who's been in the street. The pride right. is crazy. He's making baskets, putting champagne and <laughs> confetti party favorites. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, he's, he's going to kill me for this. And lining the bottom of the basket with like that Easter stuff. You know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that? You know that green stuff? The I don't even know what paper, you call like, it. No, the, oh, the, the, the grass, grass, like the, oh, the fake grass. grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's lining it, and, you know, we're making big baskets, and we're taking it to the radio station, and, you know, he's standing out there at 4 a.m. to catch Flex. <laughs> With a basket. And, and and Flex is just walking by. Yeah, 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 homie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get back to you. I get back to you. And what did, that, what did he throw? He threw in there the, uh, two copies of the vinyl, a bottle of Don P., yeah, it was Moet. Oh, Moet. Right. Bottle of Moet. I'm sorry. Yeah, because you had the bottle on the thing. Yeah. Bottle of Moet and then some party favors, maybe some cheese. Yeah, cheese and grapes and chocolate. <laughs> did it, really, did did it, it work? Did it work? all that? It, it, it didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> nah, did the record get any love? Like, no. Because I was just playing it no, on my nerd shit. It didn't really work. In my lifetime? No, man. Now, the relationship with Dame Dash is interesting. Jay's from Brooklyn, all right? He has a certain way of operating. Dame Dash is classic Harlem, but they came together and it made sense as a team. And you keep saying, you keep saying they, 
So to emphasize, you really did think of Jay-Z and his partner Dame Dash as a team. It was the oh, two 100%. of them. 100%. It was Jay and Dame. Yes, it was Jay. I didn't know Biggs that well back then because Biggs was very quiet. He was like behind the scenes a lot. Um, Jay was the artist and Dame was on the street. Dame was running around doing all the work and letting people know what it was and fighting the fights. And that, that Did that allow Jay to be the cool guy that he was too? A 100%. There's no way you can fight so hard like like he was a lunatic sometimes Dame and I mean that you know in the nicest way because you needed to be to a certain extent and Jay even though he was super smart you know super smart super um I don't know just everything was on purpose Mm -hmm. um there had to be a certain amount of like just obnoxiousness or arrogance to push them past a certain moment yeah I don't know that. I I mean, as talented, as incredible as Jay is, I think, of course, he would have found his way no matter what. I I think his story would have been very different without Dame. Now, Jay-Z releases Dead Presidents in 1996. But the B-side of that record was a song with Foxy Brown called Ain't No N. Ain't No Sample, Seven Minutes of Funk by the Hold On Family. Right, Saif? Yes, that's correct. Um, And it's an interesting record because... Foxy was scorching hot at this time. Yeah. I mean, she was hot, pop, popping. She was on fire. And I think she's like 16 or 17 years old. She absolutely shows what she's all about on this song. You got Foxy Brown. You got Jay-Z. They're both up-and-coming artists. So the collab is is basically is mutually beneficial for both of them. So you have these, these records that are helping him get more visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, he's starting to blow. Yeah. Now, he also has a developing relationship with Biggie. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But... When Reasonable Doubt drops in 1996, it puts Jay-Z officially on the map. Look, not just in New York. He's he's gaining attention of the media. Uh, uh, This album is basically traveling all around the country. We talked to Kim Osario and Daytuan Thomas, two hip-hop journalists who covered Jay for a long time. What do you mean covered him? What do you mean covered him? It's like a... What do you mean? Like it means like they like, put blankets on them? <sighs> <laughs> I was working at a company called Muse. It was a music software database that used to put the kiosk in the record stores. So I was entering all of the data from all of the CD. From every CD that's come out in like the 90s, yeah. I entered the data. By hand? Into, by hand. Oh, my God. Uh, Real what, time. It's what gives me a lot of my knowledge. I can tell you like, oh, yeah, that was recorded at Chunking Studios. Hey, this is Kim Osario, hip-hop journalist editor, and now executive producer of Love & Hip Hop New York. Yeah, Kim, o- Kim Osario used to work for The Source, Vibe, XXL. She didn't work. Called, she was editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief. But these are called magazines. What are What's that? This is the internet before the internet. This is when you could hold the internet and flip through the pages. So we talked about Reasonable Doubt mm-hmm. and how it was received. Let's start there. How did you personally receive Reasonable Doubt and how big a deal did Reasonable Doubt become amongst the hip-hop journalist crowd? So anyway, I got Reasonable Doubt. It was an advanced copy and I listened to it and no one really heard of of Jay-Z uh, back then. And I just remember being blown away lyrically. I just, I love that type of hip-hop. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I started to, you know, do my research. He actually had... This underground record, it was a B-side, right? In my lifetime? I can't get with that. Right. So he had this record. And when I heard his flow on that record, 
that's when I was really like, who is this guy? Right. You know, and then the album, the advance came not too long after that, I think. So, you know, it, it was different. It was unique. He had his own flow. It was very Brooklyn. And I think it was the way that Jay-Z put words together that really impressed me. Daytuan, um, intern to vibe. Yeah, yeah. Then you became a writer for Double XL in the mid '90s. Mm -hmm. Went all the way to editor in chief. Mm -hmm. Then worked for uh, Global Grind. Yep, did that with Russell for a bit. And now editor of chief, uh, editor in chief of Vibe. Yeah, I started King Magazine too, and the Freshman. You started list. King too. Yeah, and you started the Freshman list of Double XL. Yeah. When did you realize Jay Z is not just a dude who put out a nice single and a nice album? Jay Z's like this guy's for a real. Guy? Yeah. Yeah, it was before a reasonable doubt for me. Really? Yeah. Um, Where I are you from, Dayton? I'm from Brooklyn. Oh, uh, <laughs> Breveway Projects. And <laughs> oh, got it. We got it. Yeah, so there it is. All right. What, what about, <laughs> pretend you weren't from Brooklyn. When yeah, was the yeah, yeah. <laughs> When was the first? I would have to say, like, when, I don't know, Brooklyn's Finest was a, a, was a big deal. Yeah. To be able to get Jay and Big on the same record. Yeah. Because then that was the first time you were like, okay, here go the Titans. Called Brooklyn's it's Finest. Like, come like, on, man. You like, set the bar high. You set the bar super high. Yeah. And then in my mind, you know, of course, we're not thinking that Big is going to, you know, what end up happening to Big. Yeah. You don't think of that. You're like, how is this going to work? Because we never had Big Daddy Kane and, and somebody like with Kane that yeah. can go yeah, back yeah, and yeah. forth like that. You know, for that same era, I was just looking forward to seeing that happen. Yeah, that would have been sick. I the mean, you had, you, had, you had Kane and G-Rap on the but symphony together. But that's Queens, together. though. That's Queens. Right, 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 right. I'm right. saying like for two Brooklyn, Brooklyn dudes going, duh, 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 duh. it's always Brooklyn versus Queens, like Queens versus Bronx. Yeah. Brooklyn, like, it was like, this was this would be the first that's time true. That's two. a good point. Yeah, man. He emerged yeah. while Biggie existed. Yes. Yes. Everyone else after, you did not have to deal with the shadow that Biggie had cast in right. the moment. Right. But Reasonable Doubt made its noise and all that happened yeah, while Biggie's sitting right there. 96. I mean, yeah, imagine Biggie sitting, listening to Reasonable Doubt. Like, that yeah. happened. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think about it. That's how, supposedly, that's how the, the, the Brooklyn's finest shit came together. Clark is like, he keeps talking about Jay. Right. I think it was more so the influence of Clark rather than the people being behind Jay. Yeah. I think Big really respected Clark's opinion. Yeah, we if you that. were from Brooklyn at that time, and I'm going to be real with y'all, before I even got in the game, I remember seeing Clark Kent cross the street and I just ran up on him like, yo, man, everything you did with Dana Dane was so ill. And he was looking at me like, what the fuck you know that yeah. shit from? <laughs> By the way, for those listening and you can't see Daytuan, he's somewhere between the age of 36 and 59. <laughs> <laughs> easily, easily. And um, it was just bugged out that Big held him in such high regard. Yeah. You know, especially when Clark is the is that guy. Yeah. But the rest of the industry doesn't necessarily know that. He knew who to listen to. The appearance of Biggie on Brooklyn's Finest was a huge stamp of approval. That was I a, mean, that was a big moment. Biggie was yeah. yeah, he's one of the biggest rappers in the world at the time. He's the biggest star in Brooklyn, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they get together on Brooklyn's Finest, and it was a big deal. Yeah. Now it, it was uh it was the early version of two verbal assassins going at each other. And it wasn't just a verse, a hook, and then a verse from someone else. They were all intertwined in the song. Yeah, no, no, they go back and forth. It's amazing. Now Clark Kent, who we've talked about many times, he really believed in Jay-Z, and he was actually instrumental in getting the two to collaborate. 
Clark actually told us an incredible story about getting Jay-Z and Biggie together when we had him on one ep a few years ago. What's one thing you could tell us about, about Biggie before you go? That maybe you've never shared before or just something. We were on tour. Jim. We were we're on tour. And um I'm con- <laughs> I'm consistently playing Jay for him. And he was like, all right, all right, all right. He's good, he's good, he's good. The big. Yeah. But you know, he's not conceding. You know what I'm saying? He's like, yeah, yeah, all right, Clark, he's good. And then Un would call him and be like, yo, this that president shit is crazy, big. He listened to it. Yo, man, yo, your man's nice. And we got to that. But we didn't get to, he's the illest, right? Now, you're riding around with the dude that you feel is one of the best you'll ever hear telling him about another one. My dude is the illest, respectfully. But he's my guy. So what you believe is going to be what you believe. But now the whole junior mafia are like, we want to kill Clark. And, Why? Because like, you know, you're forcing. Because like, you're forcing. No, because I'm trying to make them understand. Yeah, I know he's nice, but my man is. And they're all going, "Yo, what kind of disrespectful shit are you on?" So cool. We're we're on our way back to New York, and Big has to go to the studio, and he says, "Yo, I'm going to go do a second verse on Who Shot You. When I come back, you're going to say I'm the best." Right. Shit. So he goes, "If who, for people who don't know Who Shot You, that first verse." was always there. Yeah, it was from, on a record from, with Keith Murray, and it was on Mary J. Blige's interlude, yeah, but you didn't get to hear Big's verse. So that verse, Hey, you he have the said, Keith Murray version? Hmm? You have the Keith Murray version? Kinda. Can we have it? <laughs> I just want it from my collection. I won't play it. Wow, that's going to find that. But regardless, right, right. so we go back, like two days later, we're back, and we're at the airport, and we're about to leave, and he goes, yo, yo, nah, 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 nah. We ain't getting on the plane. I'm like, what the fuck? He's like, I gotta play this for you. They bring out the radio and he plays Who Shot You? I'm like, I know that. He will, no. You're going to say I'm the hardest rapper out. I said, no, you're definitely, pause, the hardest rapper out. He's like, nah, but you're going to say I'm iller than your man. And I was like, dog, I I give you that you're like amazing to me. But you could not concede that he was better than Jay. But then he's like, listen to this. And he plays Who Shot You from beginning to end. His friend versus his son. You got to see where it's at. (laughs) <laughs> Jay's his friend Big's his son See what I'm saying <laughs> But I'm listening Ooh. to it And I'm just like Fuck he really meant that shit Yo You know what I'm saying So I'm telling him I was like yo You know what And that's when I I figured out Rapper MC Like my mom I tried to explain to you The difference between rapper and MC That day is when I figured it out I said yo For real You said your rhymes better than anybody I've ever heard say their rhymes. And he was like, the fuck are you talking about? So I'm the best. I was like, no, you're the best rapper I've ever heard. And he was like, so what does that make your man? I said, my man's the best MC I've ever heard. He was like, what the fuck is the difference? No, no, but like Junior Mafia, we're all in in an airport, and now shit is heated. These dudes are mad. They're like, what the fuck, man? Fuck this nigga, man. Leave this nigga home. Like, now I can't go on the road, because they're like, fuck him. And I was like, no. You say your rhymes better than anyone I've ever heard. He says the best rhymes I've ever heard. And he was like, but am I the hardest? Mm. And I was like, absolutely. Uh, You got it. So then I walked away from it. And then I was like, okay, yeah, you can get on the plane now. The respect was definitely mutual between Jay and Biggie. Here's a little more from our Jay-Z interview from 2011. There's a lot made of your relationship with Big and like the hip hop history. It's always, you guys are associated. You quote him all the time. What was the 
actual relationship like with you? I always question, were they actually really tight? Were they kind of just like guys who were worked in the, you know, were both rhyming? No. What was at, the relationship After like? um, Brooklyn's Finest, we went to uh, see Bernie Mac. And from that day, I don't think I don't think there was a day that passed that we didn't speak. If we didn't go out to eat, we spoke on the phone. Oh, you guys really? were that tight after yeah, yeah. Brooklyn's Finest? Yeah, yeah. But up until then— If you look at his last interview— uh, uh, on on BET, he's a shout out my daughter. You could tell, right? Playboy Jay Z, Jigga. It's the last yeah. thing he says. You know, he said about four names. Yeah, we we're pretty tight. Spoke just just every got close. Day. Yeah, yeah. All right, Biggie passes away in 1997, which was just as everyone knows a huge loss for hip hop. He's one of the biggest. You literally cannot overstate how big a loss it was. It just absolutely took off, took over the entire music industry. Um, he was one of the most promising voices in hip hop. And of course, he also leaves a really big space and void in the New York hip hop scene. That That is a weird thing right there because Biggie is a worldwide phenomenon superstar. Not superstar as we know today what he should have been, but like he was still the biggest rapper in the game. But there's something about being from New York and he was the king and now the king is gone. And we didn't even know we needed a king until we had one and then he was taken away from us. So now what? So now who's king? It was a night and I also remember, and this is not in order, but I do remember seeing Jay at a, he had to he had a performance scheduled and it was right after Biggie died and it was in a club downtown. And I remember he had to show up and I remember there was members of members of junior mafia there that night, but I just remember looking at him on stage. Like he looked so, I mean, we all did, but I, but him having to still perform, he just looked like broken. Mm. You know what I mean? So, Saif, would you say Jay-Z almost, like, stepped into the role of King of New York? It was almost like, who is going to be the voice, the face of New York? And Jay-Z became that guy. I mean, what are we talking about? This is over 20 years ago, right? So now, obviously, we know now that he did step into that role. But at the time, it wasn't clear. You know, the winner writes the history books, right? So, he... He was in the running because Jay-Z was closest to Biggie. It was sometimes assumed, but then other people would get upset that it was assumed. It was like, no, no, no. He doesn't just get that. Not just because he's Biggie's friend and he's from Brooklyn. Although it's interesting because when you hear Jay-Z tell us like he did about just how close they were when Biggie passed, it does make it make even more sense. Like, yes, he did it because he blew he was an incredible artist and his music blew up. But when you think about it, it does make sense that like the guy who was that close to Biggie at the time of his passing would sort of like get that honor. You think like he he had the inside secrets in order to take it over? You know what I mean? Not no, not e- not even just like the natural and true respect based not only on his ability but of the general, the real genuine affection that Biggie had for him. Yeah, but what does that matter if the king has affection for you? That doesn't make the next king. Yeah, but it does if you're also maybe the nicest in the game. That that that's combination. The that's the argument. Was he the nicest in the game? 
Um, so after Reasonable Doubt, Rockefeller starts having more leverage to negotiate Jay into a deal mm-hmm. um, because the success of the first album and mm-hmm. the singles, et cetera. And that's exactly what happens with Def Jam Records. Yeah. Def Jam ends up acquiring half of Rockefeller and becomes the distributor. Right. But that's like you had your shot. You could have got me dirt cheap. Now you got to pay. Now you need to pay for this. And Def Jam paid. They, they did. They sure did. <laughs> What did he do after the success of that record and the album? What steps did you see getting taken for him to go from this guy who dropped a great album to getting to being the star that he was when volume one comes out and starts to blow up? Well, I think what Rockefeller did just as a team was they set the tone for where um, the industry was going, right? These boutique, smaller labels that did their own thing. The interesting thing when you hear the story is that nobody wanted to sign him, right? Uh, we took him everywhere. No one wanted to sign, so we decided to put it out ourselves, right? And therein sort of birthed like this, along with other labels, but birthed this hip-hop entrepreneurialism, if I can say the word, uh, that really grew and changed the way that we consumed music, right? They changed the mold of what the industry was back then. It was like uh, twofold, right? Yes, there was the artistry. He was, you know, um, well-respected and just sort of looked at as someone who was authentic in what he was talking about. Because, I mean, come on, we was talking about dealing drugs, right? Um, And the streets. But on the other hand, they knew how to, I was going to say move weight, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't say that. He was moving weight. I can't well, say that. I don't know but, how much weight it yeah, was. Yeah, well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So they knew they knew how to they they knew the hustle and they applied that hustle to the industry. And I think they were growing not just and Jay-Z in particular was growing not just as an artist, but as an entrepreneur as well. That's Kim Osario, former editor in chief of the source. Cypher. And what yeah. Well, I have a question for you too. Yes. Well, let's not forget this part. Okay. Reasonable doubt came out on Rockefeller through priority. Yeah. Volume one comes out on Rockefeller through Def Jam. Yeah. So what? What's the story of how he ended up that him and Dame Dash ended up getting Rockefeller to Def Jam from Priority? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know a hundred percent, but that's the that's the story of the nine hundred grand. You ever heard that number before? Yeah. There's like, uh, I think Priority was just it wasn't we're signing as an artist to your company, we're just, you're helping us put this record out and maybe just this one, obviously, you know? And then he made a lot of noise and Def Jam came in and basically the, the law, the legend is they walked into Def Jam and was like, we don't need any of your money. We don't need your money to produce videos. We don't need your money to go to the studio. We just need you to put our records on trucks and deliver them to the stores, like the distribution. Right. So basically they said like we came in 900 grand. Like we already have all the money that we need. We, we have more than you would give us to do this project. You know what I'm saying? So we don't need your money. Uh, do you remember the, him going to Def Jam? I remember that story vaguely. So long ago. It yeah, it's a like. long but, time ago. You know, it's funny that when you think about it now and you would think about like how, you wonder if they really had that money right back then or if it was all just like part of the yeah. perception and they went well, in there like, yo, we got this already. And then they great... left the office and was like, yo. <laughs> yeah, we, we pulled this off. <laughs> we pulled that shit well, off. Yeah, because it's a great number. It's like, <laughs> we don't, it's not a million. We're almost at a million. Right. But it sounds so good. And 
We have 999 yeah. grand. Yeah. You know what, though? I mean, who wouldn't want to be a Def Jam back then, right? Because oh, Def Jam best. was like the source. That was where the legends in hip-hop were. Yeah. And I think that that was the big step. No disrespect to Priority, but you know Priority was like that independent label. What, what's the story? Is it Priority in the NWA movie yeah. that's putting out like yes. the, the fucking raisins? Mm-hmm. Can I curse on here? Sure. Yeah. Did, like they're putting out the raisins, right? Yeah. So no, like no one is like aspiring mean, like, to be at Priority back then. Yeah, like no. No one really aspired to be at priority, like although they were doing their thing on the independent tip. Yeah, they had masterpiece. They had no limit to. But yeah, like, they it were wasn't doing really those a label. Deals. They were just. It wasn't like Def Jam was like it, it's an iconic hip hop label. Well, at that moment, Def Jam has Redman, Method Man, LL, DMX. It was a good time Def for Jam. Def Jam. Yeah, it's Def Jam. Like, even before that, there was so many people. Yeah. No, this is this is just in that moment. Yeah. Slick Rick, Def Jam. Yeah, Def of course. Jam? Yeah. They, I mean, so, they were loaded. Yeah, they had they had they had the credibility. You know, the '90s is when hip hop really became mainstream, right? And so for Jay Z to toe that line so elegantly was a big accomplishment for us in hip hop because we're like, look at look at what he's doing. We still respect it because you remember the day when you crossed over and you were whack. Yes. Remember yeah. that? That's like early right. 90s, right? Yep. Like the whole thing is like as soon as you got that hit record and you got on the charts, it was like, ah, you're whack. Young yeah. MC, bust a move. Right. You know, we but- were very, very, it was it was rigid. <laughs> right. So a big part of establishing the entire Jay-Z Rockefeller brand was, of course, media presence. Yeah. Um, But it's still the 90s. So like mainstream media is not giving that much love to hip hop yet. That's where people don't realize like how common and how pop culture hip hop is today and like every every media company every any blog any website any magazine hip hop is on the cover just normal now but it wasn't like that back then no no that's why at that time the source and double xl these magazines were so important cuz yeah. they're some of the only national media covering hip hop seriously and is how i decorated my bedroom in those days, I needed those magazines. Great point. Yeah. Rap sheet, rap pages, murder dog, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. ego trip, the source, double XL, vibe, other stuff. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing? Do you remember what you first wrote about him or first interview you did with him or anything like that? I, I don't know if, did I interview Jay? I'm, t- I'm, I, I'm thinking I didn't interview him until after 2000, mm-hmm. right? I remember when he got the, didn't he do the first cover of Double XL or something like that? It was like one of their early, early covers. Okay. Back then, you know, magazines were, were scared to take a chance on someone who had never had a cover before. So right. if you've never had the cover, that was like a big thing. Yeah, like we can't just put somebody on the cover. And getting your first cover for an artist is a big thing too. Right. And also I think... Um, with with the source and double XL and vibe, these magazines were able to cover artists that the mainstream publications at the time, Rolling Stone, they would not give Jay Z a cover back then. Like in the nineties, when he said like that wasn't enough for them. You had to sort of become this cultural phenomenon, right. and I don't think that he was at that stage. Do you remember the first thing you ever did related to Jay Z? Who? Oh man, the rapper. Oh, is this the one the guy we're doing the podcast about? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sorry. Go Stay ahead. focused, man. Yes. Damn, the first thing? Yeah. Well, yeah, it was um it was Double XL's first issue. And I remember James Bernard, that that first issue in 97, it had a split cover. It was Jay-Z uh 
in a, a cigar spot and the other cover was Master P. And they were saying like these were the guys that were going to carry hip hop into its business culture oh. pretty much. Outside of just their rapping skill, yeah. this is what it is. That's Daytuan Thomas, hip hop journalist and editor-in-chief of Vibe Magazine. Years later, I actually did the Murder, Inc. cover with Jay-Z, DMX, and Ja Rule. Ooh. Yeah, that was incredible. That was a good when one. When it was supposed to come out as Murder, Inc. You know? Now, okay, so look, he was trying to get radio because that was basically mm. the only way to get out there back radio. in the day. Radio. And... For losers. <laughs> and magazine publications. Yeah, something yeah. Something you're an expert at. Yep. How did the magazine world... This is pre-internet, pre-blogs, pre-everything. Mm-hmm. How did the magazine world or the the the, the publications help push Jay-Z to that next level. They 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 really put his image out there beyond album covers. Beyond album covers and snipes. Album covers and snipes, that's your image. That's you promoting to get money. Yeah. With magazines, we're trying to promote to get money. So now it's like we're going to merge with whatever your look is and we try to, you know, take you to that next stratosphere. And he used the magazines just as much as the magazines used him. And he even raps about it. Magazines know they put me on the cover because I earned for them. Like right. he knew what he, he's like, yo, y'all don't love me. Mm-hmm. Y'all, I just read a magazine article that fucked up my day. He really don't like magazines. At the end of the day, he hates interviews. Right. He doesn't right. really give you a lot of shit. For the Murder, Inc. joint, like, he answered two of my questions. If, and, that, and that wasn't during the interview. It was like, I had to I had to really take in color around Jay. He had me everywhere with him. He was like, yo, come on, come on, come on. Yo, you ready for an interview? Nah, nah, chill. But hold on, you went, you rolled with him everywhere. for a day for, or whatever. More than a day. We did, he shot three videos at the one a lot. Um, Jigga what, Jigga who? Um, money cash hoes, and it was like a trailer for some other shit. So this is Alder in volume two. Yeah, and everybody was there. When I say everybody, he had the whole rock, every I'm talking Jay Brown, Irv Big um Biggs, even at even like the this was Bean's first time in Cali. Yeah. DMX is everybody the is there? there. The Rangers were not there. Uh, <laughs> forget it. I got a story with them too. <laughs> Wait, so this okay. was in Cali. You went to Cali, Cali. for this? For, for the Murder, Inc. cover. That. So that was like, I was jumping around. And, and then at the time, they were preparing for the, uh, what was the 99 tour? Not that. Uh, dude, hard everything Knock Hard Knock Life tour. They were preparing for that. And um, I bring it up because, like, you have to realize, like, Jay has the whole label. Everybody's just looking towards him, man. Like, yeah. even when he's walking, it's like, People who don't want to fuck with him, but they have to because they have to ask him a question. They need to, that's they, the only chance they got. That's the only chance they yeah. got. And then he was like, he would, he would be like, damn, like, this is the story, not what I say. Yeah. I want you to see what I go through, basically. Went to, I went to like a birthday party for Brandy with him and shit. And I got to see how other celebs act towards him outside of it being like social media. Now we know what Jay is doing in the right. corner and shit. Imagine being at a star-studded event like that and everybody is is flocking towards Jay and Jay's Even like... Even back then. It was insane. That's what I always try to tell... This is what I try insane. to tell Rosenberg because, you know, he wasn't living here at the time. Right. 
and you know he was like just a like a troll under a bridge in Maryland and <laughs> and I say even back then Jay had a presence even though he wasn't as big as, as he is now or even a couple years after that so this is 99 99 98 going into 99 98 going into 99 yeah we're still a couple of years away from the blueprint where he's at his complete yes. total stride yep but in hip hop and in the the music world yep. you're saying he was already completely the man he was already the man completely All right, so at this point, Jay-Z starts dropping. I mean, dropping music every year. Yeah. In 97, 98, and 99, he drops In My Lifetime Volume 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. They all go platinum. Hello. Um, Two goes five times platinum. Right. And three goes three times platinum. Um, he's also got massive hits, Hard Knock Life. People call it the Annie song because it features the chorus from the Broadway show Annie, uh, the little white girl that had uh, adopted by a rich guy. I think Telly Savalas was in that. Or Yoel <laughs> Brenner. Whatever, some bald white man. And Big Pimpin' with UGK, which was just an absolute smash. Smash hit. And it's a classic example of blending New York hip-hop and the South yeah. perfectly. Right. Um, it brought together a Port Arthur, Texas's own UGK, their Southern Bounce, with New York vibes as well. And these records, like, they helped him cross over and go sort of mainstream. Yeah, he was smart enough to know uh, how to make dope music, but also how to use the music to manipulate the movement into the culture, into a more mainstream realm. Yeah. And, then, and then you go further down the line. When does Jay-Z crossover into that next stratosphere. I think when he started working with like Timberland and 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 the rest of those guys, you start getting lobster and shrimp. And, I, was, I was about to make a joke. So you're saying yeah. the moment was lobster it's not, and shrimp. It's not it's not that. It's is when, you know, the nutty professor stuff and all of that, like you start seeing them on bigger platforms and stuff like that. I oh, feel we didn't like talk about that because Ain't No was put on well, Nutty Professor. On Nutty Professor, yeah. Right. Forgot so, about that. So that, what that did was that expanded the fan base as a huge-ass movie with Eddie Murphy. And Nutty Professor was Def Jam. That yeah. was Def Jam all the way. Ain't No was not. Yeah. It was, it was yeah, still it was a way to get it on there. It was, yeah. yeah. We are now in the end of the 1990s, the greatest era in hip-hop to me. Now, this guy, Jay-Z, he's really, really, really starting to gain notoriety and respect. And most importantly, he's achieving incredible financial success. I don't know if you know what that means, Rosenberg. He's getting that no. money, the bags, the guap, the pay, the cheddar, the bread, the finances, the Fetty. All of that. The Bunsen. The Bunsen <laughs> burner. <laughs> little earner. Nice little earner. Okay, so he's getting the success. He's getting the money. But here's the question I want to delve into. Yeah. When did he become part of the conversation about who's the greatest rapper of all time? Well, you know what's funny? Listen, obviously we're doing this because we do believe. Wait. Okay. Wait. Don't say it. Okay. Why not? Save it for the next episode. What do you mean? The next, We're doing another one but next I, week. I have a, a great point that I have to make. Okay, ready? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say count to three, start your point, and engineer, when I get to three, hit stop on the recorder. Ready? One, two, three. Wait, hold on. Two, oh, if he hit stop, three. I won't be able to. Go ahead, Saif. 
Wanep is hosted by me, Peter Rosenberg. And me, Cypher Sounds. Our production team is associate producer Rob Dozier. And production assistant Hebron Mendez. Dan Panarise is our associate editor. Our executive producer is Chiquita Pascal. Wanep is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio and is also created by producer Samantha Allison of Endeavor Audio and associate producer Savannah Jeffries of Mass Appeal. As well as executive producer Mark Grandy of Mass Appeal and Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio. Cedric Wilson is our mix engineer. Kasim Bradley is our recording engineer. Special thank you to editorial board TK Dukes, Gabby Bulgarelli, and Mary Baxter. I know them well. Make sure you subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us. 